0: Welcome listeners to the NK News Podcast, recorded here in Seoul on Thursday, November 8th, 2018, the day that Mike Pompeo was supposed to meet with Kim Jong-chol in New York before it was all postponed. Today, I am joined by Ankit Panda to talk nukes and more. But before we get into the discussion, I want to tell you all about the new NK Shop. NK News annual shop is back in business for the holiday season. Chad and the team have really stepped up stepped up their game this year and have extremely limited edition retro t-shirts, 2019 calendars postcards, and, this is my personal favorite, the Andy Warhol-inspired North Korea canned goods posters and vintage DPRK travel posters. Did you see them when you were in the office,
1: Ankit? I did. I actually received a full set of the posters and a... uh t-shirt that I quite like that's the North Korean Space Agency t-shirt. So I'll be sure to don that for the next space launch if and when that does take place. Excellent.
0: All right. So listeners of this podcast can get 10% off their entire purchase by using the code NKPODCAST10. That's NKPODCAST10, all one word, at the checkout. Just go to nkshop.org to see what's in stock this year. All these really great gifts are available for any North Korea watcher. So, to introduce today's guest, Ankit Pada is an award-winning New York City-based writer, editor, and international affairs analyst covering defense, security, economics, politics, and culture, with a primary focus on the wider Asia-Pacific region. Currently, he is a senior editor at The Diplomat, an adjunct senior fellow at the Federation of American Scientists, a columnist for the South China Morning Post, and an independent political risk consultant. And I don't know how he sleeps. Uh, he's also a graduate of the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs at Princeton University. He lives in. New York City where I've never been and he tweets at nktpnd
1: did I get that right? You got that right. Thanks. Okay, And you also have a podcast of your own. That's right. Yeah, if uh, listeners like what they hear here, they can check me out on the uh, Asia Geopolitics podcast at The Diplomat. Fantastic. All
0: right. So thanks very much for coming and giving us a bit of your time today, Ankit. Tell us, uh, how did you first become interested in North Korea? What was the catalyst for that?
1: Well, so broadly, I've been interested in international security uh, in the East Asian context. And sort of beginning with the uh, introduction of North Korea's Pyongyang uh, campaign in uh, March 2013 or so, I began paying a bit more closer attention to the development of various uh, weapons programs. They're focusing primarily on ballistic missile technology. And it was really around the time when uh, Jungsong Tech was knocked off that I sort of got drawn into the uh, North Korea orbit and really kind of fell in love with it. There's something really that just draws me into watching North Korea, especially uh, using open source tools. Uh, It makes it an incredibly rewarding sort of research endeavor uh, to figure out what this country is doing with its uh, various uh, weapons programs, what Kim Jong-un's strategy is broadly when it comes to his nuclear and missile programs, and really um, how the world can uh, learn to live with what I believe is going to be a nuclear North Korea for a long time to come.
0: Okay. Now, in your intro, I read, uh, which I lifted uh, casually from your website, Uh, I read that you write about defense, security, economics, politics, and culture. That's a lot. Uh, That's kind of like a a Renaissance man. Not everyone likes that. In fact, a lot of people in different disciplines like to tell others to stay in their lanes. So my question to you is, from which discipline do people more often than not tell you to stay in your lane and out of theirs? Well, first of all, I mean,
1: when it comes to technical knowledge, uh, I think... I'm not an economist. Uh, so uh, the writing that I do do about things like monetary policy in uh, Asia, I'm quite aware of my own limitations there. You know, People, uh, specialists especially, will swipe out in a, a range of areas. right? So that's really on uh, any of those topics. Uh, <laughs> so really, I think it's important to know one's limitations and always to talk to people that are smarter than you and have spent more time studying things than you ever had. Because as you point out, I am uh, mostly a, a generalist who does like to uh, delve into a, a range of topics. With North Korea, it's actually been Quite interesting. Over the past uh, two to three years, I've really sort of fallen into the, into the deep end uh, yeah. as a Korea watcher, and I think that's uh, common for a lot of people. Actually, they, uh, you know, I've I've spoken to other people uh, who primarily deal with the uh, arms control aspect of issues on the Korean Peninsula. Right? I don't describe myself as a historian of North Korea or a uh, North Korea analyst per se. I don't speak Korean, so naturally, the limitations there are uh, something to uh, be cognizant of uh, as I uh, pursue. Uh, analysis in this field, and that's really where uh, talking to you know sharper career watchers, many of whom are based on the peninsula. And speak the language is a uh, really valuable tool. Of course, uh, trips to Seoul uh, really have no substitute.
0: So, tell us briefly, or sort of talk us briefly through the discussion of denuclearization on and around the Korean Peninsula. I understand that uh, U.S. tactical nuclear weapons were stationed here in South Korea from '58, so only five years after the end or the armistice was signed, right up until 1991 when George H.W. Bush was president. Uh, so, talk us briefly from that point to where we are now. What what are the terms that are used when we talk? About denuclearization and what agreements were made along the way to bring us up to here.
1: Right, so that history that you just alluded to uh, is significant in the current context. Uh, there's a peculiar reason that we don't talk about disarmament in the context of the Korean Peninsula with regard to North Korea. We use this word denuclearization, and to understand the origin of that, it, it really does go back to the fact that we did have U.S. tactical nuclear weapons present on the Korean Peninsula. So when we hear the phrase complete denuclearization, as we have seen in the inter-Korean agreements this year, or the phrase denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, we are really discussing a bilateral process of nuclear threat reduction, right? In 1992, the two Koreas, uh, for the first time, introduced that phrase to our diplomatic lexicon, denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula in the agreement, February that year. Um, And then 25... Uh, years later, North Korea perfects its nuclear deterrent. Um, obviously, U.S. tactical nuclear weapons haven't been present on the peninsula since 1991, but that's reality that North Korea has never been willing to explicitly acknowledge. So when North Korea discusses complete denuclearization, and uh, this is something that I find myself uh explaining quite frequently to people who point out that, well, why is Kim Jong-un not serious about giving up his nuclear weapons if he's signed his name onto two declarations this year using that phrase? The answer is because uh when it comes to Removing the nuclear threat from the Korean Peninsula, what we're really talking about now is extended deterrence, the U.S. alliance with North Korea, and the presence of uh, U.S. quote-unquote nuclear assets on and around the peninsula.
0: Right. This is something that uh, Evans Revere also mentioned in his uh, uh, podcast with me a couple of months ago, that from his discussions on track 2 or 1.5 uh, with North Koreans in, uh, in third countries, that this is what they've said is, um, you know, as soon as you remove all U.S. troops from the Korean Peninsula, you know, remove Korea from the nuclear umbrella – uh, that sort of thing, then we will take that as being complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. Um, where are the nearest nukes, as far as uh, uh, nearest American nukes, as far as we openly know?
1: U.S. ballistic missile submarines could be anywhere. We don't really know where they're located. At any time their locations are a tightly held secret, uh, we can assume that they probably do sail through the Sea of Japan at least occasionally on uh, deterrence patrols. Uh, their primary, their primary mission is strategic deterrence against uh, U.S. adversaries, including Russia and China. And the- land-based nukes, are there any in Okinawa? And Guam, as far as we know, the United States only has silo-based ground-based nukes currently. Uh, so those are all based on the continental United States. Uh, so that and they're all um, regulated currently under the uh, New Start counting rules. So we have pretty good ideas about how many warheads the United States does have deployed right now. The nukes that North Korea really concerns itself with are the ones that are stationed on Guam at mm-hmm. anderson Air Force Base. Right, these um, are the ones
0: that could be dropped from the air or. Thr- or- fired from the air.
1: That's right. That's right. And uh, the United States, after uh, events on the Korean Peninsula, provocative events, nuclear tests in the past, and uh, certain ballistic missile tests out of North Korea, has flown bombers uh, to the Korean Peninsula. And uh, there's been an important sort of distinction here when it comes to the kinds of bombers that the United States flies. On one hand, you have the B-1B Lancers, uh, which are non-nuclear capable bombers, but that North Korea treats as nuclear capable assets. They have not had a nuclear mission since the 1990s, and they were disabled for the nuclear mission in. 2010. Uh, but the B-2s, the B-2 Spirit, uh, those are nuclear capable systems and the B-52s are nuclear capable, uh, some of which are nuclear capable. And those assets have also been used uh, near the Korean Peninsula to signal to North Korea and really to signal to South Korea and Japan as well. But uh, Part of the reason the United States flies these bomber missions after provocative North Korean events is to reassure its allies that it would be willing to use its nuclear weapons to um, back them up in the case that a war did break out on the Korean Peninsula. So uh, when when those flights occur, North Korea sees those as nuclear threats. It's really no different for North Korea than the uh, presence of tactical nuclear weapons on uh, South Korean soil.
0: A practical difference between what is meant by denuclearization when talked about by North Korea and when talked about by the United States. States. You've alluded to that, that uh, for the North, it means no nukes anywhere near Korea or able to be sent to Korea. And for the United States, it means no nukes anywhere in North Korea. What what kind of practical effects are there from these uh, very different understandings of the same word?
1: Well, so the practical effect that we've seen this year and the diplomacy we've seen in 2018 has been that Uh, Both Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un signed their names onto a single declaration in Singapore that uses the phrase that North Korea will work towards the complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. However, you may have noted that uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has repeatedly used a quite different formulation, which is the final fully verified denuclearization of North Korea, comma, as agreed to by Chairman Kim in Singapore. Now, strictly going by the text, Mm. that is not what Chairman Kim agreed to in Singapore. Uh, So we do have a uh, difference, a very important difference here. The United States is seemingly carrying on with the impression as if Kim Jong-un has agreed to unilaterally disarm. And the North Koreans have been explicit about this point. We have the May 16th statement right. about, published in KCNA attributed to Kim K. K. Kwan, the um, the senior North Korean official at the foreign ministry, uh, in which he rebukes uh, John Bolton's comments on the Libya model of right. democratization. We'll
0: send a ship, you just put the stuff on and we'll get rid of him. Yeah, Oi. to
1: Oak Ridge, Tennessee. The North Koreans are not interested in that and they find it insulting to be even compared to Libya or Iraq, uh, countries that they often refer to in their... Mm. um, propaganda. And uh, they, you know, Kim Ki-Kwan made the point that North Korea has an ICBM, Uh, you know, for the first time in 46 years, the United States in 2017 came face to face with another nuclear armed adversary with an ICBM. What happened 46 years ago, China tested the DF5 for the first time, and that was the second nuclear capable adversary capable of ranging the U.S. homeland with an ICBM. So the North Koreans uh, point out that, look, we're um, we're not Libya, we're not Iraq. This idea of us unilaterally surrendering our weapons is simply uh, not on the table, and If you think that it's on the table, then we really can't have any kind of productive discussion.
0: I've offered you a drink. You've said yes. And I'm over here fixing you a cup of coffee and telling you, here I am making a cup of coffee for you. And you believe that you're about to get a mojito.
1: That's right. Yes, I would be disappointed if I were expecting a mojito and you gave me a cup of coffee. Right. But as
0: I mean, you you mentioned, Mike Pompeo said, comma, as you agreed to in this thing. So here I am making this cup of coffee, which you just asked for. Right. So, some creative uh, use of language there.
1: Right. And look, I mean, I I have to say, based on my conversations with folks uh, who are currently working on North Korea diplomacy in the United States, these people are not... Stupid. They know the history. They know this history. Uh, certainly the specialists at the State Department um, in the uh, East Asian Pacific Affairs Bureau know that denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula has a bespoke meaning in the context of the Korean Peninsula. So why would they – why would Pompeo keep using this rhetoric? Right. I think that's a very interesting question. Um, one possible explanation is that they are trying to gaslight the North Koreans into – reassessing what they've agreed to, uh, which is a strategy that's bound to fail. Um, but if it's something that they're trying, I think it's it's better that they uh, figure that out sooner rather than later, <laughs> uh, especially <laughs> because President Trump seems to be under the impression that uh, North Korea, well, he has said that the threat is gone. Um, he said that the day after the Singapore summit, uh, but he certainly seems to be under the impression that North Korea is about to give up its nuclear weapons. And it's important that he realize that that is not what's mm. happening right now.
0: What's your best estimate as when North Korea decided Uh, we are on the track to building nuclear weapons. Do you date it back to the 90s, 80s, 70s, 60s, 50s?
1: There are sort of several um, steps along the way. So I think uh, in the 1950s, uh, in the Eisenhower era, uh, both um, Mao Zedong and Kim Il-sung have a a very similar assessment of the role of nuclear weapons. Uh, The Chinese obviously developed nuclear weapons. Uh, By 1964, they test their first weapon. But what they see is that the United States is using nuclear weapons in Asia as a a tool to coerce other states, as a tool tool. We have evidence from the first Taiwan Straits crisis when the United States moots the idea of using nuclear weapons to um, bring the Chinese to heel. Uh, we have requests during the Korean War yeah, to uh, deploy yeah. nuclear weapons. Well, so the broader point is that uh, you have uh, U.S. officials that repeatedly make these claims. When I mean, and, I mean you know, this is the 1950s when uh, atmospheric nuclear testing is taking place. Nobody's right. really figured out how these weapons... Are going to play a role on the battlefield, if at all. um, Before quickly realizing, you know, we've only had two wartime uses of nuclear weapons. We've had over two thousand nuclear tests uh, in human history. Most of those conducted by the United States and the Soviet Union. And in 1961, China and North Korea conduct um, conclude their their friendship treaty. And that's a treaty we haven't heard a lot about this year, even with the three meetings between Kim and Xi Jinping. But second, uh, Article Two of that treaty does include a uh, a collective security provision. Uh, But by then, I think uh, the lesson that Kim Il Sung takes away from the Cuban crisis, uh, in my view, is that these kinds of superpower guarantees are, uh, are worthless. Uh, Cuba is effectively left, left in the dirt.
0: Uh, now, what's your best ballpark guess as to the quantity and quality of North Korea's current nuclear arsenal?
1: I don't have a personal guess, but uh, the intelligence community, the U.S. intelligence community, has two separate assessments that often get conflated. Uh, So one of those is the higher number, the 60 to 65. It's actually 65 right now as of um, July 2018. And that 65 is the quantity of fissile material, uh, highly enriched uranium and plutonium that North Korea has in its possession that could be converted into nuclear weapons. So if they decided to weaponize all of that material, they could come up with an arsenal of about 60 to 65 weapons. Then there's a smaller number, uh, which is a CIA assessment, that North Korea has about twenty actually assembled weapons ready for mating with, nucle- uh, with ballistic missiles.
0: Okay, so it's a difference between raw materials and stuff that's ready to go. Or that's ready to right, blow, and that's a really important well. difference. Yes. Now, what about missile arsenal? What's the uh, sort of the quantity and quality of North Korea's missile arsenal in terms of both ICBMs and you know more general mid to short term, short range?
1: Right. So when when we're discussing the missile arsenal, there's sort of two things to uh, consider. One of those is launchers, uh, the launcher counts, and the other is the actual ballistic missiles. Um, it's highly, un- um, you know, improbable that North Korea would be able to reload its launchers in an actual conflict. Once a missile is launched,
0: is it because it takes too much time, and it, in the interim, it would be hit by something?
1: It takes it takes time, and in any uh, in any war scenario, one of the primary objectives for um, the United States and its allies are to locate all of North Korea's. Uh, nuclear capable ballistic missile launchers, mm. disable them so that they cannot be used against uh, targets in the region or against the U.S. homeland. Yeah. But on that on that front, uh, on the at the higher level of its uh, nuclear forces, if we're talking about ICBMs, North Korea has six launchers, and those launchers have been seen at least publicly uh, to have been used with the Hwasong 14, which is an ICBM range uh, class system, and the Hwasong 15. Uh, my suspicion is that North Korea is going to convert those six uh, launchers that it has, which are uh, heavy logging trucks that they imported from China uh, under uh, falsified export licenses. Mm. I think that they'll be converting those for the Hwasong-15 to use against the U.S. homeland. When it comes to the Hwasong-12, the intermediate range system, uh, which was formerly uh, actually that role was assigned to the Musudan, they have about 30 or so uh, transport erector launchers, uh, give or take. When it comes to their SCUDs, there are a range of numbers that I've seen, but the number that I kind of work with is they have upwards of 150 launchers for the Scuds. Um, but it's not clear to me that if they do have an arsenal of 20 Warheads, as the CIA assesses, that many of those warheads would be assigned to those scuds. They may be using that for uh, conventional high explosive payloads, possibly uh, chemical, biological.
0: Okay, now let's talk uh, specifically about the Yongbyon Nuclear Scientific Research Center, which I believe produced the radioactive material that was used in all of North Korea's six nuclear tests. So that went, uh, here's my potted history. It went online in the mid 1980s, but was shut down in 1994 as part of the agreed framework. Then it was restarted in 2003 and produced plutonium in 2007, it was shut down again as a result of a six-party talks agreement. And then in 2008, the cooling tower was famously destroyed. For this last step, the US paid $2.5 million as a a fee, I guess. Then it began reprocessing once again in 2009, was suspended in 2012 and restarted in 2013. And that is where we more or less less brings us to where we are this year. Firstly, did I get anything wrong in that potted history? And secondly, what specifically has North Korea agreed to do with Yongbyon, assuming that it fully carries out its promise in this regard?
1: Youngbyon. The word Youngbyon does appear in the September nineteenth inter-Korean declaration, and that got a lot of press coverage because, uh, for the first time in the diplomacy this year, the uh, fuel cycle aspect of North Korea's program became part of the sort of diplomatic universe, so to speak. Right? We'd only been talking about the liquid propellant uh, engine test stand at Sohei, the Punggiri nuclear test site, but now we're finally talking about sites where they were producing fissile material. Uh, and here's something that I really want to emphasize: is that the language in the inter-Korean declaration it is a conditional statement that hinges on the United States offering corresponding measures, Uh, sanctions relief and end of war declaration um, are possible sort of specifications there. But the mention of Yongbyon occurs as an example of things that may happen if the United States pursues these corresponding measures. It is not an offer that is yet on the table. It is sort of intended to draw the United States back to the table and hint at the kinds of things that might be possible. So that's the first thing. Uh, As far as your history goes, I mean, uh, that's basically right. Yongbyon has been uh, operating on and off. We don't know. uh, It's actually very difficult to tell the exact timings when they've been switching on the reactor, turning it off. Uh, We have much better data uh, for the 1990s and the uh, early 2000s, given that the uh, IAEA was uh, present on the ground. They haven't been there since 2008, since the collapse of the uh, six-party talks process. The value of uh, Yongbyon, as far as limiting North Korea's uh, nuclear program goes... Is is quite significant. It's it, like I said. I mean, we're, we can talk about the other enrichment sites. It's not the only site uh, where they can produce fuel for nuclear weapons, but. Importantly, it's the uh, it's the only site where they can produce uh, tritium, uh, which matters for North Korea's thermonuclear arsenal. Uh, Tritium is produced by irradiating lithium six in a uh, nuclear reactor. They've been doing that probably at the gas graphite reactor if they've been producing that domestically. So without that reactor, if that reactor is to be disabled, uh, that may qualitatively shift the uh, kinds of weapons that North Korea is able to uh, build its arsenal around. So that's that's an interesting approach to arms control because we can uh, basically push Kim Jong-un away from his 250 kiloton thermonuclear device, the one that he showed off in September mm. uh, and, and claims to have tested, and uh, encourage him to uh, pursue, uh, you know, comparatively lower yield thermonuclear um, fission devices. Uh, so that's sort of one aspect there. But I will say that Yongbyon is a—the Yongbyon Scientific Research Center has 300, uh, give or take, buildings. And— Right now, we aren't talking details.
0: Okay, that's a good point. That's an important point. Uh, now, as a, as for the second site, you had a uh, a big scoop in uh, July this year in the Diplomat magazine in which you had an article revealing uh, a second site, the Kangson Covert Uranium Processing Plant. How was this site discovered? Tell, sort of t- tell us about the, what were the signs that pointed to it. Um, was it satellite analysis? Was it uh, movement of trucks? Uh, and then what's the significance of both the discovery and the site itself?
1: On that story, I worked with um, a Jeffrey Lewis and a Dave Schmerler at the uh, Center for Nonproliferation Studies in Monterey, California. Uh, the two of them are a very well-known uh, open source analysts working on uh, North Korean issues. And the real clue that led to the discovery of uh, the site, and I will be clear, though, the, the central claim in that article is not that the site that we've located is... A uranium enrichment site. The claim is that this site that we have located corresponds to the site that the U.S. intelligence community has identified as the Kongsong uranium enrichment site. So that's a subtle difference, but it's important because the assertion that we're making is not that we have this open source evidence that tells us that this is an enrichment site. There is sort of a combination of um, closed source and open source evidence that that points towards this. The main clue that really led to the discovery of that site was the actual name Kongsong. So that was actually reported by NK Pro, but also uh, David Albright at the uh, Institute for Science and International Security um, published a few slides using uh, using a different transliteration of that name. He had an extra G at the end. So it was actually Kang Song, um, but we were able to uh, figure out that that probably meant Kang Song, which is a uh, a another name for the Cholima site uh, where uh, this is near which this is located. Based on that, we uh, actually were able to um, – the U.S. National Geospatial Intelligence Agency has a geonames database where you can plug in any any site name in North Korea. For instance, um, Sohei uh, is actually referred to by the U.S. intelligence community as Yunsong. So you'll sometimes see that pop up in uh, various uh, reports when reporters speak to intelligence sources and they say North Korea has conducted – a static engine test at Yunsong and you plug in the name Yunsong into this NGA database and it will tell you the coordinates for Sohe. Uh, so similarly with Kangsong, you plug that into the NGA database, you get a set of coordinates and uh, you start to uh, narrow these down and Basically, once we started looking around Cholima, uh, we found this building that was larger than any other building in the in the Cholima area. It had some very interesting security features um, that pointed to a site of national defense significance. Um, we had uh, evidence of these larger buildings, but also just the floor layout uh, really uh, lent itself to a potential uh, centrifuge enrichment site the bigger thing was really looking at the historic evidence. So what we know about North Korea's development of a uranium enrichment program started to match up really well with the construction dates of Kongsong. So uh, it doesn't exist in 2000. By 2003, you have evidence of a foundation going down. And that's around the time when the agreed framework falls apart and the Bush administration comes open about the fact that North Korea has been pursuing an enrichment program, um, although they weren't enriching. But that evidence, when the Bush administration um, made that revelation in October 2002, was based actually on intercepts of um, aluminum tubes going North Korea for mm. a large percentage of um, uh, centrifuges. So yeah. we don't know where those centrifuges were at the time, but the U.S. intelligence community knew that they were pursuing an enrichment program. But with Kongsong, the site that we identified as Kongsong, you see that evidence. And then separately, um, there are uh, U.S. intelligence estimates that, that point to this very same site. The kinds of evidence that the intel community is working with probably include things that open source researchers could never have access to, uh, including human intelligence, signals intelligence, potentially hyperspectral imagery, synthetic aperture radar, pointing to uh, further evidence at this site. Um, But there are disagreements about this specific site. And uh, that's, uh, I think, completely fine. I mean, other intelligence agencies actually do disagree with the U.S. about this, that that this site is specifically an enrichment site.
0: So they're saying it's something, but we don't know if it's nuclear uh, uranium enrichment.
1: That's right. And this is why we really, and the bigger takeaway here is that this is why we need to talk to North Korea about sites like this. Has um, it been mentioned so far in discussions? I believe it has, because the North Koreans have, uh, in in shun and KCNA, complained about this issue of so-called uh, secret enrichment sites and mm. secret sites. So they've been complaining about this issue. Uh, so I suspect that it has come up in the negotiation process. It's per- Perhaps uh, one of the reasons Pompeo's visit in July uh, did not go so well. Uh-huh. Um, we also heard that there was a third enrichment site. Uh, that's a site we don't have a name for yet, uh, but we at least have some sign that a, a third site does exist. It's thought to have a smaller capacity. So Kangsong, the uh, the separative work uh, unit capacity of Kangsong is about the same as Yongbyon. So uh, the Yongbyon enrichment chamber that was uh, built out of the old fuel fabrication building uh, and Kangsong have about the same um, relevance for North Korea's production of highly enriched uranium.
0: Are there uh, significant parts of both Yong, Yongbyon and uh, Kangsong that are underground
1: facilities? Kangsong, as far as we can tell, uh, even looking at the foundation in, um, imagery, uh, does not appear to have a significant underground component. Uh, and I think the same goes for Yongbyon. Um, as far as we know, the gas graphite reactor and the uh, experimental light water reactor, if that is what that building is, don't have uh, significant underground components. The third enrichment site, it's possible, may be uh, based in an underground facility North Korea certainly has a large network of underground facilities spread all over the country, sure. aso- associated with its um, military programs, but. As far as we know, uh, no, Song is uh, above ground, hiding in plain sight. It's mm. a short distance from Pyongyang, too. Michael Madden at 38 North uh, wrote an interesting uh, comment on the article of Kangsong, where he uh, sort of pointed out a lot of strange things about this facility, that North Korea had actually built it in a uh, way that was quite different from many of its other uh, facilities of national defense significance. Um, and I actually agreed with a lot of what he pointed out, uh, that yes, it is quite strange that this enrichment site is sitting off of the Pyongyang-Nampo Highway, a very short distance from Pyongyang, and it is effectively running... Right there for for the whole world to see. Yeah. Uh, but an enrichment, si- um, you know, an enrichment facility really doesn't have too many signatures to really tell you what it's about. Um. So we we all we really see is a very large building. Uh, but if you look closely at the other signatures, and obviously if you uh, do speak to people that have made the assessments about this site, I think it becomes a lot a lot clearer that this is probably a uh, an enrichment site. Okay. So
0: cooling towers are not necessary for an enrichment site.
1: No, but but some kind of cooling is necessary. Uh, power delivery is necessary. There is uh, evidence of that. Uh, You don't need the kind of cooling that you need for a reactor. But yeah, I mean, uh, one of the features of Kongsong is that it's obviously it's located in Choluma, where we have the Choluma and uh, the steel uh, factory. So uh, that is a major industrial site for North Korea. So adding another large building there uh, wouldn't really raise many eyebrows uh, compared to sort of putting a large building like that in the middle of nowhere. The minute that that's located, it becomes a lot more suspicious. Uh, So One of the interesting things is that it took until 2010 for the U.S. intelligence community, I believe, to actually come to that conclusion that this was an enrichment site. So the Mm. North Koreans, I think, for a while, if their intention was to hide this in plain sight, if that was what Kim Jong-il was thinking and making sure that Kang Song was placed where it was, uh, they they seem to have gotten away with it for a while.
0: Mission accomplished, yeah. Now, today, Mike Pompeo was supposed to meet with Kim Jong chol in New York. Uh, but that's been postponed indefinitely. I think it was also Kim Jong-chol who used terms like uh, gangsterism and—
1: Gangster-like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that was the yeah that was the KCNA uh, readout after Pompeo's July trip. Right,
0: you know? after the July trip, yeah. Yeah,
1: and uh, Kim Jong-chol is a prickly guy. Uh, he has a reputation for being uh, prickly. He does not like Americans, and he brings that to the negotiating room. I think Kim Jong-un has seized some value in that negotiating style. Uh, that's probably part of the reason why uh, Ri ho has not been give, assigned the um, the portfolio of negotiating with the Americans this year. Uh, and, and Kim jong Chol does seem to be on a, on a close basis with Kim Jong-un. This meeting with Pompeo, if it had taken place, I really doubt that it would have been about substantial issues. Um, that, again, those issues about, you know, are we going to talk about Yongbyon? What are the inspection protocols that will be applied at punggye at, at Sohei? Those issues should be discussed by uh, Steve Began, mm. the special representative. Really, I think uh, I was expecting this to have been a logistics-focused meeting. Um, really looking forward to the second Trump-Kim summit. The pattern here is, is familiar. The, the North Koreans canceling uh, a, um, a schedule. Scheduled meeting. Uh, This actually happened. It didn't happen to Pompeo, but it happened to um, the US logistics planning team in Singapore earlier this year in May. Uh, they were ghosted in Singapore. The North Koreans simply didn't show up. Uh, it's a it's a tried and tested North Korean tactic. You know, we also have a few signals from the North Koreans, obviously, that they're starting to put a bit of uh, heat on the United States for sanctions relief. Uh, we had a very interesting op ed that went out just a few days before the uh, scheduled date of this meeting. Uh, it just appeared in Minso Kiri, which is closely associated with the United Front Department, which is Kim Jong Chol's shop, uh, making the. You know, very subtly hinting that North Korea may restart its uh, its nuclear development. Although they didn't exactly say that, they you know made the reference back to the Pyongyang line. That reference I thought was interesting. And now then we see this cancellation with Kim Jong Chol. So I think the North Koreans are trying to convey to the United States that uh, they are they mean what they are saying right now, and that this process may fall apart. Although I don't think they're really in a rush to be seen as the bad guys. If this process does collapse, I think it's in North Korea's interest to make it seem like it is collapsing as a result of the United States. So I don't think we'll see the North Koreans conduct a launch anytime soon or anything Mm -hmm. like that. Although I may be wrong about that. We haven't surprised in the past with things like the leap day deal. That's uh, that's sort of my uh, general sense of what's going on right now.
0: But meanwhile, we've got President Trump saying at a press conference in the last 24 hours, quote, we're very happy with how it's going with North Korea. We think it's going fine. We're in no rush. We're in no hurry. The sanctions are on. Uh, And then when he was asked about a second summit meeting with Kim Jong-un, he said sometime next year, I would say sometime early next year. So he's still very upbeat, at least publicly, uh, about it. Are people not telling him what's going on? Or is he deliberately trying to play nice in order to make North Korea... To, to sort of force North Korea to be the bad guy by pulling the plug? What are you, What's your interpretation of that?
1: Well, so th- this is, I mean, it's, it's a great question. And I don't pretend that I can read his mind. I mean, there are a range of explanations here. I think Mike Pompeo is has been trying to keep things going as positively as he can. He has a vested interest in seeing this process succeed. Uh, but what that means, I think, is quite different uh, for Pompeo. Trump has repeatedly made a f- reference to the moratorium that North Korea announced on April 20th this year, uh, that it won't be testing intercom range ballistic missiles, which has de facto led to a freeze on all missile testing. They haven't tested shorter-range systems either, and they won't be testing nuclear weapons. So Trump keeps pointing out, you know, he said this in his meeting with Kanye West, that, oh, things are going great. They're not testing missiles or uh, testing uh, nuclear devices. So as long as that doesn't happen, mm-hmm. I think Trump's happy. Uh, but yeah I mean I, th- I think that he's uh, he's genuinely looking forward to a second summit meeting with Kim jong-un and the North Koreans I think have also figured out that if you want any progress if you want things like major. US South Korea exercises to be called off if you want things like potentially even sanctions relief you're going to have to get Donald Trump alone in a room Pompeo Bolton uh, Mattis uh, these these men know the you know they have a much more conventional thinking about US policy towards North Korea but but Trump doesn't have many of those predilections so for the North Koreans that's a major benefit you get Trump alone in a room and you get all kinds of concessions that you could never get out of Pompeo in a uh, a negotiating setting.
0: So how would you advise President Trump ahead of a second summit? What would you tell him going into that room alone with Kim Jong-un?
1: First thing I would say is that he has not agreed to give up his nuclear weapons. And that's really not what you'll be discussing with Kim Jong-un. So that's the first thing that I think the president needs to realize. And I'll, I'll emphasize why I think that's important. If this does collapse, and if either the North Koreans do something or uh, the United States simply continues to hold this position that sanctions relief will only come after denuclearization has occurred. The the dangerous outcome that's sort of been a possibility throughout this year is that John Bolton, the hardliners in the administration, make the point that we've tried diplomacy. North Korea clearly didn't mean what it said when it said it would denuclearize. And now the only option is to use force to take Kim Jong-un's nuclear weapons away from him by force. And that would be a disaster uh, for the entire region, for the United States. Um, so that's, I think, the f- the first thing for the president to recognize. And, you know, he does get daily intelligence briefings. I'm sure he's seen the very same reports that we got out of NBC and The Washington Post uh, this summer about North Korea manufacturing more missiles and mm. continuing to enrich um, official material. Uh, so if, if the president's simply ignoring that, that's a major disadvantage for the United States there. Um, the second thing is that in order to get anything, I mean, if we are going to try to move towards um, encouraging North Korea's restraint, and it's, you know, Kim Jong-un has shown a degree of restraint this year with his decision to stop testing. He's not flaunting his nuclear weapons anymore, which uh, we saw with the September parade this year, no nuclear capable systems. I think Donald Trump liked that and he likes this. So in order to encourage North Korea to be a restrained and responsible nuclear power, which they are effectively describing themselves as, and they've done that earlier this year, we need to be open to a phased approach, and and that requires thinking more creatively about sanctions. Um, mm. But So sanctions are really the brick wall right now.
0: So what kind of sanctions relief and when is reasonable in exchange for what steps?
1: The uh, the problem with sanctions relief is you have to write something down. You have to write down what the North Koreans will give you and when. A lot of what's been happening this year has not been detail-oriented. It's all been verbal. I mean, the, the Sohei um, missile engine test stand, that was an interesting thing because uh, Trump announces it at the press conference mm. in the Singapore agreement, and he says that... The, you know, we agreed to things that weren't in the agreement because right. we didn't have time. So they just agreed to this four point agreement, uh, this very general, you know, one point on denuclearization, two points on uh, peace regime, US DPRK relations and on the recovery of troop remains. And yeah, we agreed to some other stuff. And then we see North Korea, uh, you know, a uh, Bermuda is at 38 North, picks up satellite imagery of North Korea, dismantling this. Missile engine test side all of a sudden, and it turns out, oh, hey, this is apparently something that the North Koreans are doing now. In order for us to get to sanctions relief, um, we need to sort of do uh, something like a miniature version of the Iran deal, right? Iran only got sanctions relief after the JCPOA had been agreed to. I mean, it was a 150-page detailed document. Yeah. That would be a pipe dream in the North Korean case. Something was written down. And the, the conditions that would have to be met in order for sanctions relief to occur were clearly specified, uh, right? So right now, those conditions, as stated verbally by Mike Pompeo as recently as this past weekend, are total denuclearization. And we're never going to get that. Um, so maybe we we shift the goalposts a bit. We talk about Yongbyon, uh, which the North Koreans have already shown an interest in discussing. You know, a certain list of things have to be done at Yongbyon in exchange for some rollback of things specified in Resolution twenty three ninety seven last year. Uh, let's say sectoral sanctions relief on the textile sector. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a pretty penny for North Korea. It's not. A, it's not total sanctions relief, but it is something, and it it helps build trust. If the North Koreans do get an inch from the United States, which is kind of their position. They say, we've given you all these denuclearization steps. We've done all we're willing to do for now. And then you have to you have to come an inch towards us now. And for them, that that inch, you know, as we saw with a Ryong Ho speech at the UN, is really sanctions relief. Um, so but that's kind of where we think we need to uh, At what stage go. do
0: you think that a uh, an end of war declaration or a um, promise to uh, a non-aggression pact, uh, what stage would that... Be the sine qua non, beyond which North Korea wouldn't move, you know, without that?
1: I think the North Koreans have readjusted their expectations on an end-of-war declaration. Here, I'd point to the KCNA commentary that I believe was dated October 2nd, October 4th. I'm not exactly sure about the date, but it was in early October. They released a commentary effectively pointing out the history of this issue of an end-of-war declaration. And really, that the issue that they're now looking for when they talk about corresponding measures, in my view, is sanctions relief. I think sanctions relief is proximally a much more important issue for the North Koreans. Getting to an end of war declaration, I think, has been much more important to the South Koreans. Mm. Uh, President Moon Jae-in has certainly placed a lot of value in that uh, sort of moving towards an eventual peace regime. Um, In the United States, though, I think there continues to be a belief that The armistice regime, which we are currently under, has worked. It has prevented a resumption of all-out war on the peninsula since 1953. There have been close calls. There have been near misses. There have been... Uh, serious incidents, um, including as recently as 2010 and even in 2015 with the landmine incident. Uh, but a total resumption of hostilities has not occurred. Um, so in, in order for the United States and North Korea to get there, I think you need a much higher baseline level of trust between the two countries. Um, and that's effectively what the North Koreans have said as well. So right now, the corresponding measure for the North Koreans, I think, is the is sanctions relief issue. The The idea of this declaration, of declaration, uh, declaration for declaration that North Korea would declare an inventory and the United States would agree to a declaration to end the Korean War, I think that's sort of um, been thrown off the table at this point.
0: Okay. Last question. How optimistic are you of this going well and us not going back to where we were a year ago when we were talking about bloody strikes, about people moving their assets off the Korean Peninsula, about taking a vacation in April, that kind of thing? How optimistic are you?
1: So I'm not not very optimistic. I think that the United States will end up missing the boat on this opportunity as it has in the past with North Korea, because I think we're not going to get to the point where the United States um, is going to uh, think about sanctions in the way that I just described. I think uh, we're very, it's It's very unlikely that we'll see the U.S. shift uh, its tone on on the sanctions issue. Even, I don't think it matters what the Russians or the Chinese want at the United Nations. The Security Council is not going to come around. And I think we, and it's not just the United States. Uh, President Moon's recent trip to Europe, I think, showed us that the French and the Brits are not willing to uh, change their line on sanctions either uh, until North Korea has possibly given much more than it's willing to give right now. I will say, as a note of optimism, um, I've been quite encouraged to see the implementation of the Comprehensive Military Agreement of September 9th between the two Koreas. And a corollary of their agreement has been that UNC and the Korean People's Army have reactivated their military hotline, which was disabled since May 2013. And that was a big concern I had last year in 2017, was that the possibility of a military miscalculation was much higher because UNC, USFK, had no means to contact the KPA Uh, So when the United States was conducting bomber flights, um, the North Koreans had threatened explicitly at the UN last year to shoot down U.S. bombers that uh, entered their airspace. And North Korea has a quite capacious um, claim to what they think their territorial airspace is. So so those kinds of miscalculations will hopefully – be less likely if this whole process does fall apart. Obviously, the nightmare scenario is that, you know, we have John Bolton whispering in Donald Trump's ear if this diplomacy does fall apart, that military force is the only option available to the United States. You know, the the optimist in me does want to see real value in the kinds of inter-Korean rapprochement that we've seen this year and and hope that if and when North Korea and the United States realize they really have no common ground and there's no win-set to be found between the two of them here, because the U.S. is not willing to uh, really change its thinking on the sanctions issue, and and frankly, the North Koreans, I mean, you know, they they aren't going to be willing to make significant concessions. They're not going to be putting their ICBM tells in a field and blowing them up on you know on their um, on KCTV for the whole world to see anytime soon. I mean, that would be a serious gesture that they are willing to give up their ICBMs. For instance, they're not going to do something like that. So. I mean, I just I just think that this boat will be missed like it has been in the past. And uh, my hope is that we don't go back to fire and fury.
0: All right. Well, missing the boat. And on that uh, not so optimistic note, we'll have to end it there today. Thanks very much for your time, Ankit Panda. And to our listeners, don't forget to check out the NKshop.org for North Korea related holiday gift ideas. Ten percent off your entire purchase by using the code NKPODCAST10 at the checkout. Thanks. And listen again next time.